Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. thing I've ever done. I told her everything. I asked her to meet me in the park, and when I got there, I was pacing, numb. I wanted to be anywhere else. Half of me hoped she wouldn't come. The other half knew I had to tell her. Now. The look on her face. Not angry. Distant. She told me that I was a lie. But if she left me, it wouldn't even be a divorce because the guy she married was a lie. I'm not a lie. Believing a lie, living a lie, perpetuating a lie. You can look, but you just can't touch. That's a lie. pastor and my wife has recently caught me looking at porn on the internet. I'm at home alone. My wife has left to pick up the kids from school and all I can think about is going online to look at pornography. It's out of control. Well, we've spent the last couple weeks on a subject that quite honestly many churches are reluctant to touch and, and most Christians are squeamish to talk about. And understandably so. Um, Yet it's a topic that the Bible addresses with an unflinching eye and with incredible candor. No one likes to talk about porn or porneia, right? Which we've learned is the broadest word in the Greek language for sexual sin. Sex is a privatized affair in our postmodern world. And the mantra of our culture is kind of what happens in my own private bedroom is, is nobody's business but my own, right? Yet, we've been discovering the Bible actually suggests to us otherwise. If we're to actually believe Scripture, God apparently is quite interested in our sexual behavior. He was the creator of the experience, after all. And so he has a vested interest in seeing that one of his most glorious inventions isn't exploited or or distorted and abused. Our series has been called Porn Again, Exposing the Church's Dirty Little Secret. (laughs) And while the term porn again might be a little tongue-in-cheek, but we acknowledge that it's not that far off the mark. With the average use of pornography by born-again Christians actually almost identical, if not surpassing regular usage among the general population. And so I thought we'd spend the next to last session in our series by taking a look at the power of porn, the subtle lust of the eyes that no one sees, the indulgence of the flesh that's kind of just enjoyed in private, in the lives of one of the most esteemed of all believers in Scripture, the life of King David. You might remember King David, taken from the sheep pens of Israel. Go ahead, Jen. Um, David rose to become one of the most powerful and accomplished monarchs in the history of ancient Israel. His might was unprecedented, honestly. His wisdom and courage unparalleled in the life of God's people. And he enjoyed not just the favor of the Hebrew nation, but favor actually in the eyes of God. He was a godly man. I mean, the Bible, in fact, reserves for him a title that no other person in Scripture ever received. David was a man after, anyone? God, whoa, you've, oh, church people are here. After God's own heart. He's the only person in the history of Scripture to enjoy that incredible title. And yet this man after God's own heart harbored for some time a deadly secret. He had eyes that actually, like any man's, tended to wander. (laughs) 
and you couple that with the unchecked power of a monarch revered by people and blessed by God, and you've got the perfect combination for a fall of, of epic proportions. The story of David and Bathsheba is one that maybe you're familiar with, but I believe God may have something new to impress on your heart today if you'll let him. There's a reason you're here with us. You might be a regular attender, or maybe you're visiting from another church, or, or maybe you're listening over the, the web, but for whatever reason God has you with us today, there's no reason to fear or dread our discussion of this subject. The world is the source of the guilt and shame that's tragically kind of attached to sexuality. It's, it's not God's design. And it's our hope to not only redeem that by, by revisioning God's original intent behind sex in our lives, but to help those of us who are struggling take one step forward on the path to forgiveness, restoration, and wholeness. So let's pray and invite God into our time and, and to lead by his Holy Spirit. Lord, again, we invite you not just now to breathe life into your word, but would you breathe your breath on our hearts? Open them up, Lord. Some of our hearts are stony and a little calloused or shut down in this particular area. And we want to, um, more than anything, Father, we really want to uh, open ourselves up to anything that you would like to do in us. Change us, Father. Let us leave this place one, one step closer to becoming the people, the free children of God you had in mind. In your name, amen. Um, First and Second Samuel are, are, are two of the most compelling books in Scripture. Um, they contain the rise and fall of mad kings, outlaws, kingdoms, wars, battles on an epic scale to make Lord of the Rings kind of look like child's play. And the greatest of subjects under historical consideration is King David. If you've been traveling with us at Liquid, you may recall we actually almost spent five months, almost a half year last year, tracing out the whole life of David, saying this is kind of a template for all Christians who would hope to walk with God intimately and develop a heart that's after his own. David is the same guy you read about maybe in children's books or your mom told you stories about. Um, he was an outdoorsman by trade. He was a, anyone know what he was as a, as a young man? Shepherd. Oh, good. You know a little background. He was also a warrior poet in every sense of the word. The original Braveheart only, he really did write poems. He was a delicate harpist penning the Psalms in, 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 in some of the most poignant of all poems in the Bible. And he was yet also Israel's fiercest warrior. It was after his slaying of the Philistine giant Goliath that the Hebrew nation took notice and recognized this man is something special. This man, could we say, he's actually anointed by God. And one day he'll be king. And he was. He was a good king. In fact, better than that. He was a king after God's own heart. In other words, he was a representation of the character and loving integrity of Yahweh himself. Yet when the curtain is kind of drawn back on 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I want to thank Drew and Chrissy for that great reading, we find the shepherd boy, he's all grown up. <laughs> he's middle-aged, in fact. And God has made his enemies a footstool, a footstool under his feet, just as he promised David that he would. And so this mature king, he is in his prime, and he's at the height of his military success and political power with his enemies behind him. He finally brings peace to the nation of Israel. And he is ensconced in the royal palace at Jerusalem. David is a public hero on one of the grandest stages in antiquity. And it's at this moment that his private life becomes, shall we say, entangled. If you haven't already done so, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel. Uh, the Bibles are in the rows there. Maybe you have your own. We'll bring up the lights just a little bit so you can follow along with us. But I want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. Before we get to David and Bathsheba, there's, you've got to understand the context or backstory of this. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Some helpful, helpful backstory. And you might notice in your Bible, mine says the heading is David's Victories. And that's a good title because our narrative opens up in the wake of one of the most successful military campaigns in the Middle East. Now, this is... 2 Samuel chapter 8, and I want you just to skim over the verses. We're not going to go verse by verse here, but I want to give you a sense of, of where David was at in this moment in his life. Look at verse 1. It says, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took... I'm not even going to try it. Mephegamach. 
Did that sound Hebrew? <laughs> From the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground. Da, da, da. Moreover, David fought. You'll notice something. This is a catalog. Don't read through the whole thing. But, but 2 Samuel 8 is a catalog of all of David's massive military victories over the surrounding nations. This is one of the most successful military campaigns in the Middle East. He subdues the Philistines in verse 1. In verse 2, the Moabites become subject to David and bring him tribute. Look at verse 4. When he lined up in the battle against the king of Zobah, David walked away with 1,000 of his chariots, it says, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 of his soldiers. Not only does he take, kill people, he takes them captive. Verse 5, David struck down 22,000 Arameans. And in verse 8, it says he plundered bronze and gold from his enemies in Taba. And apparently it says his, his victories over the entire army of Hadadezer were so total and complete that distant kings actually sent him tribute of precious silver and gold as a preemptive measure. Because they didn't want to bring David's heat on themselves. So all in all, the author of 2 Samuel wants us to get across the lofty idea that David kicked some serious butt <laughs> in battle. Fierce warrior. Brilliant general. Powerful leader of God's people. And there was a reason for that. It's hinted at in the recurrence of a key phrase in verses 6 and 14. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. You have a catalog of all the ways that David is taking names. And it punctuates it twice. And the Lord gave David victory everywhere. The Lord was with this man. More than that, the Lord had anointed him. Placed a protective hedge around him in battle. And actually empowered him to vanquish any army or legion that set itself up against him. There was no foe too strong, no enemy too powerful to derail this godly leader. He led his troops in concert with the living God himself. And no weapon raised against him prospered. Every enemy fell to the wayside, vanquished at David's feet. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And although verse 13 of 2 Samuel 8 tells us that David became famous, look at that, after he returned... ...from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt... ...it didn't go to his head. See, he may have been a fierce warrior towards his enemies... ...but he was a benevolent ruler of his people. He was a man after God's own heart. And that meant that it was not just fierce... ...but full of compassion for the poor and needy. A ruler who truly cared for his subjects... ...did mercy, loved justice, protected his people. Look at verse 15. It testifies to David's character. And David reigned over all Israel... ...doing what was just... ...and right for all his people. So after all of this... ...all the battle, all the bloodshed... ...anointed leadership and victory in the name of the Lord... ...and tireless work on behalf of God's people... ...David needed some time to... ...relax. Whew. Take a load off. Can you blame him? Hang up his spear and bow... ...his sling and his sword. Oh yeah, that was the one with Goliath. This was the... Place them on his palace wall in Jerusalem and actually take, partake in a little R&R. &R. Can you blame him? <laughs> Ironically, as you know, it's actually once he lays down his weapons, leaving the killing fields of the Middle East for the plush private comfort of his royal palace, that the real trouble begins. 2 Samuel 11, turn three chapters over with me now. You've got the backstory. I just want to look at the first few verses together because they provide one of the most revealing portraits of how porneia and private lust works to derail a godly life. In the spring, verse 1 tells us, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. I mean, as we just learned, right, David's military campaigns had been so successful, he enjoyed actually such complete and total victory over his enemies that it actually wasn't even necessary for him to go back to go off to war personally. This was a mop-up operations. And so he actually selected his most capable general, Joab, to go do kind of, you know, the mop-up. And all this so David could kind of relax. And immediately we're struck with a foundational principle about sexual temptation. Oftentimes, our moments of greatest vulnerability come in the wake of our most stirring victories. Any, any pastor or ministry leader knows this, and it, and it, would, it wouldn't seem to make sense, you know? You think after, after doing a brilliant job, like effectively leading and serving God's people, that peace 
and impenetrability would, would, would just naturally follow. Not so, David teaches us. He relaxes. He lets down his guard in more ways than one. Just, just as the physical rigors and discipline he knew as a soldier were relaxed, apparently David's relaxation also extended to his moral life. And he lets down his guard, literally, and spiritually, and opens the door to private temptation. I mean, you don't even have to agree with the foundations of the Bible to know intuitively, this, isn't it so often this way? <laughs> I want you to think back for a moment. Let me ask you a, a personal question right now. How, did, how, how does your devotional life do when you go on a vacation? <laughs> your last vacation, I want you to imagine it. Say, how did I do with the Lord? <laughs> if you're anything like me, your spiritual life falls to pieces. There's something about being physically away from the routine of day-to-day life and, and the discipline that comes with work and, and ministry, regular prayer and Bible study with other people. Something about it is like refreshing to get away from it, but also deadly. It, the wheels come off in my spiritual life whenever I go away. Whether it's on vacation or to a conference or retreat. For me, it's like it's, if I go to a hotel room, it's like hotel rooms have a magnetic force field that totally disorient me. I'm, like, I'm pretty clean at home. You can ask Colleen. But, but physically, my hygiene in a hotel room falls apart completely. Towels all over the place, empty bottles and wrappers thrown about. So, something about being in a, in a hotel room with no accountability and there's, like a, there's some stranger going to clean up after me. It brings out like my inner hedonist. <laughs> after, after a weekend's vacation, my hotel room looks like the Rolling Stones had their like, after-tour party there. S- spiritually, I see the same effects. Where does your devotional life go when you're on vacation? <laughs> my, mine goes down the tubes. Let me ask you, how many of you actually spent time reading God's word this morning? Okay, the five of you can leave, (laughs) right? Or praying, I actually find, it's ironic, but when I'm at a Christian conference or retreat, that's actually when I find I have the least amount of discipline, because I'm away. I'm just here to relax and be refreshed, let other people do that work. And so any sense of spiritual discipline kind of goes out the window. As a leader is left vulnerable... And exposed. The guard over his heart is lowered. It's not a coincidence that David lets down his inner guard in the wake of such outstanding spiritual victory. It's a common experience for church leaders who are actually used by God to powerfully lead their people. Let me be real candid with you. I know that my biggest vulnerability, let's stay on topic, to sexual temptation, comes immediately and inevitably after preaching or teaching at Liquid on the subject. Always, never fails. Especially when I talk about porn or lust or sexual issues. Forget it. I get hit like a freight train on the way home. It is like clockwork. It happened a couple weeks ago after we started this series. I mean, it's like you're baiting to, you know, it's like porn again. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It's going to happen now. I spent time after the message just talking with people after the first uh, message. And and there were some people who were deeply touched, convicted about kind of just indwelling sin in their own life. And, And I love, I love to minister in that context. I, I, Glenn has taught me to become a, a decent listener <laughs> to their stories. I was able to console and just kind of encourage them, pray with a few of them and, and for them. And it's, it's times like that, if you're in ministry, you know you're like, as a leader in, in Jesus' church, you feel like, ah, I was built for this. For this I was made. But you know what? I get in my truck to drive home. It's 11.30 at night. <laughs> And my heart is warmed. And although I'm physically exhausted after a day of ministry, my, my spirit's awake. My mind is wired. And as I drive home, I just like begin relaxing. I turn on the radio. And I, and I, all right. Since we're doing confessions. And it wasn't like Stephen Curtis Chapman. <laughs> I blast like the killers. For some reason, I love to play loud rock whenever I come home from church. <laughs> some people play hymns in their car. I play the killers. And when I get home, it's late and Colleen is already in bed. <laughs> But I, I can't sleep. I'm like so wired from like church activity and, and ministry excitement that, that I grab a cider and go downstairs to watch TV. Now, as you know, there's not much to watch on TV on Sunday nights. Unless you're looking for infomercials, for Miracle Diet Pills, or Joel Osteen. Same thing. So, so, I, so I engage in my, in my favorite sport of all time. I'm really good in this. I, I'm hoping it'll be a trial uh, Olympic sport in, uh, in 2008. Channel surfing. That is it for me. Colleen will tell you. She can testify. Look at her, nod her head. Amen, amen. I can rip through channels like a media junkie. This, 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 you don't know what I can do with this thumb. And I can monitor 10 shows at once in the course of an hour. I can even actually follow the storylines because we got like a PIP picture in picture. I'm like the king of all media. 
And it's my indulgence because it's something Colleen won't let me do when we watch TV together. So it's like, this is my little chance. And inevitably, I come to the upper channels, you know, 57 channels and nothing on, try like 379 and nothing on. Nothing on except for, whoa. What, what, was, what was that? Did I go back one? I, I, I can't make that out entirely through the, the scrambled lines, but <laughs> did I just see what I, I, think, I think I saw? A, a little, oh no, flash of skin? Truth be told, I actually, I, I think I saw a, a was that a, a nipple? Was that a breast? Stop. I'm only hours removed from ministry, from pastoring and leading the people that God's placed under my care, helping usher them into his presence, encourage them with his word, and the fleeting images of scrambled porn beckon to me, inviting me in for a closer look. And God, who was so present only 45 minutes ago, is nowhere to be found, or at least I'm no longer aware of him because my defenses are down, and I'm relaxing. Mindless channel surfing, that's my indulgence in the wee hours, my little reward, I earned it for a hard day's work. Apparently David had done some late night viewing habits as well. Verse two says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw, did I? A woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And it's at this moment, every Christian leader, every purported follower of Christ has a choice to make. Well, do I go back one? Do I go in for a second look? Just a quick glance. I saw something there. Something, something exotic. Something alluring. I want you to imagine King David striding out onto his rooftop late at night. It's late. He's already actually been in bed, the scripture says. And the city is asleep. And he strides out onto his veranda for just a breath of like cool night air to survey his peaceful city. It's now at peace. And as he surfs his eyes across the other rooftops below and windows below him, something, something catches his attention. Whoa. Was, was that? What? Go back one. She is beautiful. A young woman in a pool of water. Sudsing up, apparently. <laughs> With no modesty whatsoever, I can only imagine the evening shadows making the image more enticing. And as King David looks at her, sets his eyes on her sensuous form in the moonlight, he's faced with a choice. Do I drink her in? Do I enjoy the image of her form? And just take a private eyeful. Or do I move on? I, no, I, I, well. Facing a crossroads, decision to make that no one would know but him and the Lord. And David chooses to linger, to look, to actually drink in the image of this young woman. Just, you know what, it's just harmless. Just enjoy her. I'm just the, the mental picture of her bathing, washing over his eyes and undoubtedly alighting the pleasure centers in his brain. And this, this moment of truth, folks, is the exposure of a leader's character. What we do in private when no one's looking especially when it comes to sexual temptation. Because in our Corinthian culture, we encounter 24-7 erotic imagery and sensual images all around us. It's not relegated to late-night TV or rooftop voyeurism. <laughs> We've got computer screens. Round-the-clock access to websites, chat rooms, portals, porntopia that promise a little pleasure for the soul in repose and relaxing. And it's what we do in that moment. When our eyes first sniff out that image and our mind actually poses a proposition, just take a quick look. Just, just inquire into this. Just look. 
Our minds are curious organs. Find out a little bit more. And so David lingers in the place of temptation. He takes a second glance. He looks. He lingers. He drinks in her form, enjoys a private eyeful, and undoubtedly in the back of his mind with the whisper, barely audible, you deserve it. You've been doing God's work. You're his man. You fight the Lord's battles. Heroically leading his people. Relax, indulge. You know, you're only human. The words of verse 3 actually tell us all we need to know. And David sent someone to find out about her. He makes the fatal decision to linger and then inquire. Instead of bouncing his eyes and going back to bed, his look becomes a stare. And somewhere along the line, his stare becomes more of a libidinous leer. And in that moment of decision, when he drinks her in and decides to just find out more. I'm curious. I'm curious, guy. King David... A man after God's own heart becomes just another dirty, leering, old man. Transformed. Just another second. Little inquiry. And David sent someone to find out about him. Folks, David teaches us two important lessons immediately from the outset. As leaders of God's people, oftentimes our greatest vulnerability comes in the wake of our most stirring victory or work on behalf of God. Right after the spiritual high comes the inevitable <sighs> exhale. And it's that moment of letting down one's guard that the enemy springs his trap. And not in spectacular ways, but just in an invitation to subtle compromise. A, a private eyeful that somehow relieves the pressure and pain of being in constant battle and, and work and ministry for God. But secondly, it's what we do in that moment of vulnerability. Do we take a second look? Do we linger in the place of temptation? That makes all the difference. I want you to contrast David's response with the scriptural admonitions we've been studying the past two weeks. In 1 Corinthians 6... Remember, Paul used that amazing dynamic verb, sexual immorality, flee, flee from sexual immorality. Don't stand around, don't talk with it, don't linger, you linger, you lose, flee. And you remember I showed you that, that image when I put the word flee, as we're kind of doing images in multimedia here, we're always like using image banks to find like what words it matches up, and we type the word flee, and it had this gazelle. <laughs> remember leaping across the fields was like this mad deer. And, uh, and we put it up there, and you realize, and, and the caption said, a, a, um, a, a gazelle on the Serengeti flees from a lioness outside the picture frame. You stick around for that. Harmless inquiry. Let's just talk. Let's just see what this is about. Can we talk this out, lioness? <laughs> You're done. We have a million opportunities for compromise in this area in porn again America. <laughs> Whether it's cable channels or magazines like Maxim or Cosmo, porn is mainstream all around us. And it doesn't force itself on us brazenly like, look at me, come and have your life destroyed. <laughs> it simply just captures our glance and then whispers innocently, just find out a little more. That's where it starts, innocently enough, just curious. Click on a link. You don't even have to give a credit card number. We'll give you a free starters tour around the place. Like what you see? Find out more. But here's the thing. While temptation like this is common to all Christian men and women, this episode does nothing if not normalize erotic temptation. While, while we're guaranteed to be tempted throughout life like this, God guarantees us something else, a way out. That was the promise we discovered in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul tells us, now no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Stop your self-loathing, say, I'm the only one. No, nothing of this is uncommon. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. In fact, when you are tempted, God will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And that's an amazing thing, and it's like a great promise, but sometimes lust can be so disorienting that you're like, I, I, where, where is it? But look what happens to David. This is amazing. Would you look at verse 3 real quickly? This is kind of interesting. It says, David sent someone to find out about her, and it says, the man said back to David... Isn't this um, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? <laughs> this, this faithful page, this sensitive steward, the king of all Israel, summons a courage to artfully kind of remind David that this woman um, you're inquiring about, um, sir, is not your uh, wife. <laughs> no offense, my liege, but isn't this woman you're inquiring after someone else's daughter? Heroically, this servant tries to humanize the woman for David. He's like, this isn't just a body. 
This isn't just some flesh to consume. This is a woman, one of God's most amazing creations. She has a name, David, Bathsheba. She is, she is some father's daughter, another man's wife. He's, he's a, a gift from God to him, not to you. And you realize a lifeline is being offered to David by God through the words of the servant. Think twice. Why are you doing this? Take pause. Don't inquire. What does David do? He just kind of declines that way out and blows right past the exit ramp God offers him. David, think of this. Brilliant at leadership of God's people in battle. But fails self-leadership when no one is watching. Verse 4 says, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Lingering in the place of temptation, indulging in the private eyeful, inevitably leads down the road to fully partaking in something we never dreamed of. We would have got caught up in when the night began. So after the private tour, whoa, we give the credit card number. <laughs> Curiosity morphs into indulgence. Just kind of surfing the web <whistles> becomes regular visitation at a certain hour. And like David, you decline the way out offered by God and choose instead the anonymous orgasm with the stranger. We don't stand up under temptation. We cave instead. Complete collapse. Total failure. This is the power of indulging in private lust, in porn and fantasy. It opens our eyes to another's body, which is not ours for the taking. And most significantly, it blinds our eyes to the one who is alongside us offering a way out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, anyone heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Made the observation that when lust takes control, he says, at this moment, God loses all reality to a believer. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Brilliant. Truly, God disappears to lustful dies, even to a man after God's own we were discussing this during our staff meeting uh, this week. Erica, she was, you know, er- Erica brings a wonderful female sensibility to, to this issue, and she, she keeps us very sensitive to it. And she was like, you know, she suggested, if, if men just knew what porn does to women, how it degrades them, how it sets up terrible expectations, just dehumanize them. If only men, like, knew these women, could see their faces, know their names, it'd be enough to stop them in their tracks. Um, but Drew goes, uh, I disagree. <laughs> He goes, be candid with you. He goes, um, no. That, that knowledge is helpful. It makes it more painful. But every time he's made a choice for lust, it's almost always with a conscious decision. Actually, I'm aware that Jesus is here, but uh, I, I, I can't really be around you while I'm doing this. <laughs> so scram. Scram God. And so it's even worse. It requires of us a conscious severing of our connection with God. It's the ultimate con job. You see this? Trading in the intimacy and love with our creator for a hasty, faceless exchange with a stranger. With a faceless apparition who exists only on the magazine page, TV, or computer screen. That's the con. It's the devil's doing. Make no doubt of it. The epistle of James describes the process well. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away. And enticed. There's a, a resident evil, to borrow a term from popular culture. The world entices, the flesh says, uh-huh, makes agreement. And we're subtly falling into the kind of darkness we never would have dreamed possible. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Okay, one thing. One thing is for sure. David did not wake up that morning thinking, today is a beautiful day for adultery. I think I'll enjoy, you know, maybe tonight just I'll enjoy indulging a little voyeurism um, that will blind me to God. Uh, maybe exploit and pounce on some unsuspecting woman and just totally derail my life and family forever. That sounds about good. It's far more subtle than that and more gradual. Would you flip for a moment back to Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5? In fact, go to verse 13 there. This is, again, important backstory, and I want you to see that this is not just something that pounces on David, but there's a gradual process that happens here. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. There is a telling little detail 
that gives context to David's sin with Bathsheba. It says, after David left Hebron, David took more, what's that word? Concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Now, in context, this is mentioned almost as an aside in this chapter, which details David's original assumption of power in Jerusalem. But what makes it significant is that early on, David established a pattern of cultural compromise that set the groundwork for his future fall. That is, taking additional wives, concubines, the gathering of a harem, was specifically forbidden by God in Deuteronomy 17. Understand something. It was widely accepted as part of the Middle Eastern culture. Everybody did it. Not a problem. It was expected, especially of powerful monarchs. But Yahweh, God, establishes a different standard for Hebrew kings. He says, you are not to be polygamists. You're going to be different from everybody else. We're going to show something through my covenant relationship that I'm going to have with you and you're going to have with another woman. But early on, David, in the midst of all this, chooses to kind of, you know, put that calling to holiness, being different. Instead, chooses the root of legal sensuality. It wasn't considered adultery in the culture of the day, but it was sin in God's eyes. And David's decision to go along with the practices of his day undoubtedly begins the gradual process of desensitization to God's holy call in his life. And so he embraced the socially permitted patterns of sensuality, these legal ones. And, and, and folks, this is where it starts. You get this? These culturally acceptable indulgences that eventually take us down. What are those legal sensualities for you? You know, the ones that our culture suggests are completely accepted and acceptable, that, that you kind of let in, into your life. The late night channel surfing, it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, the adult bookstore. It doesn't have to be hardcore porn on the internet. How about the stuff that comes on at 8 o'clock on TBS? Have sex with everybody, friends included. Very funny. That's how they're billing Sex in the City reruns right now. On TBS, America's Family Station. Sex and City people, it's letting this kind of sensuality into our lives. And I've watched the show, sometimes I can't, I'm like, oh, this is funny. And then, oh, humor, even worse, undermines it, <laughs> makes it acceptable. It's hot, it's a laugh. You're not in on it, you're not sophisticated. It's these sensualities that, that everybody accepts, I mean, it's not like shameful, that soften us up. And suddenly, once we've watched a sensual, like, you know, drama like Closer. Anyone seen the movie Closer? Oh, beautiful people doing ugly, ugly, horrible, terrible things. The leap to a soft core fantasy life is a lot easier to make. Let me suggest that David's previous compromise with the surrounding culture here in 2 Samuel 5 is what leads to his progressive desensitization of sexual sin. The man who originally was highlighted by the, the prophet Samuel for his inner integrity. Do you remember what happened? Like the, 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 the prophet... Samuel actually overlooks all of his brothers and says, no, man looks at the outward appearance for a king, but God looks where? At the heart. And he likes what he sees in you, David. What no one else can see, God sees your integrity. You are a pure one. You have a, a, a pure heart that's after his own. What happened? Subtly, insidiously, through these smaller indulgences, an inner descent from purity to, his, to from holiness takes root in David's life. And the benevolent king who once was the reflection of God's own sacrificial character, exploits a stranger for his own selfish pleasure. You know, as I was meditating on this passage this past week, I know it's ugly. Um, the ugliest part for me was the last five words of verse 4. They just began to glow for me with sadness. It says, after David sent messengers to get Bathsheba, he slept with her, quote, and then she went back home. After drinking in her beauty, <laughs> using her body as a receptacle for his private lust, he just sends her away. And I, and I imagined her, like, walking home in the dusk, in the early morning hours. Imagine the feelings that must have been whirling inside, just the humiliation, the confusion. Was, is this my duty? I mean, this was the king after all. Feelings of being ogled, pawed at, and then just dismissed. And, and for David, what did David feel at that moment? Just, like, disgust, just guilt? Did he actually have to deaden his heart to get on with the task the following day? Like, okay, now, uh, all right. So, what do we got on the agenda for today, this morning? Pretend like nothing happened. Last week, I introduced you to British author Henry Fairley, who writes of lust in his book, The Seven Deadly Sins Today. He says, lust is a humiliation of the flesh, of another's, and of one's own. In contrast, this is so great, love 
wants to enjoy in other ways the human being whom it has enjoyed in bed. It looks forward to having breakfast. But in the morning, lust is always furtive. It dresses as mechanically as it undressed and heads straight for the door to return to its own solitude. Who'd have thought? Man after God's own heart, the shepherd king of Israel, now hollowed out and devoid of truth, beauty, intimacy, all because of a private eyeful. That's the power of porn, folks. And we're all vulnerable to it. Perhaps especially vulnerable to it since we're marked men and women as children of God and servants of Christ. It's called a holiness. There were a few particularly insightful entries on our church blog this week. And I'm grateful for those of you who are posting your uncensored thoughts and experiences online. They're helping to expose the strongholds that many of us wrestle with. And hopefully aid in the freedom that God longs to bring. This is a post from MC who writes this. What if I told you that as a Christian, I looked at porn every night. That as a Christian, I was obsessed with porn. Though I didn't believe in sex before marriage. What if I told you that I spent hours online trying to find another website with free porn? What if I told you I know how to get it free and to share it for free? What if I told you that every time I looked and masturbated, that I prayed for God to take it away from me? Did I not pray hard enough? That I confessed and groveled to God, to Jesus, and nothing happened? That I still did it over and over and over what if I told you I was introduced to porn so early that I don't even remember my first encounter? That by the time I was 14, I was so addicted to it that magazines did nothing for me that I had to have videos? What if I told you that I was vice president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, missions chair at the Baptist Student Union, and a, a youth minister for a small church during the summer while secretly feeding my addiction to porn? Would you believe me? Would you scorn me? What would you do? What? would you do? What if he or she was your brother or sister? What if it was you? When I think of addiction, I think of quicksand. Uh, we've all seen the TV movies, the old westerns, where a guy's walking along and suddenly he screams out because he stepped into quicksand. And, and before you know it, he's up to his waist. The thing about quicksand is the more energy you expend trying to get out, the more the quicksand is going to swallow you up. Uh, sexual sin is quicksand. Pornography is quicksand. And the thing about quicksand is this. You can't get out on your own. You need somebody else to come along and pull you out. Ferris says the thing about quicksand is the more energy you actually expend trying to get out, the more the quicksand is going to swallow you up. Sexual sin, pornography is quicksand. When, when someone finds himself caught up in it, like David does here in 2 Samuel 11, their first inclination is actually not to come clean. It's to cover it up. Dismiss as inconsequential. Keep it secret. Damage control. That was actually David's subsequent episode with Uriah. It's a perfect illustration of this. With Bathsheba pregnant, David's got a little problem now. <laughs> the illicit product of his sin is not immediately visible to the naked eye. No one else knows at this point. But in nine months, David realizes someone's going to be checking my browser. <laughs> someone's going to be seeing where I've been. And so he goes actually to cover his tracks. And he summons Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in verses 6 and 9 from the battlefield. The king calls Bathsheba's husband home and he engages in a little cat and mouse with him. Look at verse 7. When Uriah came to him... David asked him how Joab was. So uh, how's things going? How's, how's Joe? How's Joe doing? How the soldiers were? And, and you guys in the battlefield, get any food? Get any get blade sharp? And how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, um, listen, I'm the king. I can, you know, make commands, edicts. I want you to go down to your house and wash your feet. Wink. 
which if you know anything about Middle Eastern custom, was code language. Uriah, you are a good soldier. You, you've, you've been hard at work in the Lord's army. And you know what? You deserve a little break, a little R&R. <laughs> I want you to take some time off. Go home and wash your feet. <laughs> know what I mean? In other words, get your, go clean yourself up. Prepare yourself for the marriage bed and go visit your wife. She's a lonely lady. And you must be hungry for a little reward, young man. Wash your feet. Prepare for bed. Shave your face. Put on a little cologne. Go enjoy the wife of your youth. You get the idea? David wants to get himself off the hook. And he figures if he can get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, once she starts showing, people will assume, well, this is the normal product of marriage. Oh, I see Uriah was, was busy. Your feet are very clean. You're like, yeah. And, and David gets off the hook. He eliminates suspicion, or, or, or so he hopes. <laughs> Problem is this. Uriah is one stubborn bugger. <laughs> and he stands in stark contrast to where David was at this point in his life. Uriah was a man of unparalleled integrity and character, apparently. <laughs> and verse 9 tells us that Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with not his wife, but all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. Now, catch this. Uriah chooses to be faithful to his calling as a servant of God, and he declines a little private indulgence, choosing instead to remain loyal to his responsibilities as a leader charged with protecting God's people. He actually has a right to enjoy the sensual indulgence. He's married. It's your marriage bed. It's your totally your right. And he actually says, no, actually, my integrity comes first at this moment. Nothing wrong with him. I have nothing against her. But I'm on task. I'm on mission. I serve my brothers, and I serve this kingdom first. Undoubtedly, this upset the king, and when David finds out Uriah, Uriah declined to enjoy a little pleasure, he demands of him in verse 10, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah's response in verse 11 is revealing. Look what he says. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I, I will not do such a thing. <laughs> you see the contrast? Uriah's heart is so sensitized to his calling as a full-time servant of God, there's no break, that before considering gratifying his own physical appetites, he takes into consideration everyone else around him. First thing that comes to mind is who? God, the Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the Lord's presence. He brings it to mind. He goes, with it. secondly, he thinks of who? His fellow brothers, the Lord's men camped in the open fields. He has a responsibility, dare we say accountability, to his brothers too. What would they think if he's off indulging, softening up? Will they suffer hardship? In other words, Uriah responds to David, um, thank you, sir, appreciate that. Thank you for that, king. In light of my commitments, though, to God and my fellow brothers, how could I go enjoy sex right now? As sure as you live, I will not do such a thing. And can, I want you to imagine the look on David's face as he looks into the eyes of this earnest foot soldier and is struck by the contrast in their character. David, who actually stayed behind when the army was out, isolated and alone, indulges in relations with a woman that's not his to take and is now trying to CYA. Here's Uriah, who refuses to let his guard down, although invited to partake in a gift that's rightfully his to enjoy. And he says, no, self-discipline is too important. My first allegiance is to God. And then the men I'm in community with. The Lord's men. My band of brothers who are in the field. And go to, I go to battle with them. The point, in case you've missed it, folks, is that integrity begins with not letting one's guard down, even when we have a rightful reason to do so. And instead, being account in an accountable community with trusted brothers or sisters who go to war with you. Accountability is essential in this battle for sexual integrity, folks. You know, we often, you know at Liquid we often expose the myth of Lone Ranger Christianity. You can't hope to keep your integrity if you're isolated and without ties to fellow believers. Let me, let me read you the second part of MC's blog post because I think he offers us a word of hope in this regard. He writes, I was a smart addict. I knew that the only people I could tell were the ones who were addicted themselves and thought it was okay. I spent most of my time rationalizing and justifying it. I even convinced my fiancé at the time that it was okay. I had every T crossed and every I dotted when it came to why I was looking at it. It's only natural wasn't even one of them. But every night and every time I looked at it, my stomach filled with guilt and shame. 
And I felt like puking. I prayed and prayed and prayed that it would go away, and it never happened. It wasn't until I joined a small group and confessed my sins to them that I felt healing, and my life began to change. It was the confession to not just people who shared my addiction, but also to people who didn't share that addiction and loved me anyway. It was that second group that changed my heart more than any. Why, I wonder, could it be that grace, true grace comes when we share love, faith, and hope with those who we don't share sin with? Amazing. As Jesus shared those things with us, though he did not share our sin, I think so. My confession wasn't enough, though. I had to starve the sin. I still can't use some programs that allow you to share software. We don't have certain channels at home. I have control of that addiction now. It's my stallion. Reference the C.S. Lewis story I told last week. But I still confess it. Like any good addict, I understand that I am always one look away. Imagine if David had MC for an accountability partner. And MC grabbed David by his shoulders, looked him in the eye on that fateful morning and said, David, just remember, brother, whatever happens today, you and I are always one look away away. Let's make a covenant with our eyes, you and I, not to look lustfully on another woman like Job said. And then they prayed. What might have happened that night when David was posed with this rooftop pleasure? There's no telling. But the mindset of a man who's in covenant community with other brothers and sisters and the one who's isolated and alone couldn't be more different. When posed with sensual indulgence, Uriah asked shocked, he goes, Uriah literally asked, he goes, how, how could I? He's like shocked. That's how sensitized his heart was. That's how on game he was. That's how in tune he was with the Lord. Revulsion at the thought. Where David sees the, sees the same opportunities and he goes, hmm, how could I? Let's find out more. Let's draw a little closer. And the rationalization is, hey, I've been working hard. Everything else, I, I won't let this out. And to really drive the contrast home, we're given the details, by the way, of David's plan B. Which is kind of comical, by the way. Did you, did you get the humor of this thing? <laughs> Since he couldn't get Uriah to compromise, he invites him back the next day. And in verse 13, he ate and drank with Uriah, and David made Uriah drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his brothers, his master's servants. He did not go home. Good old stubborn Uriah. <laughs> Even when his mind is altered by the king's wine, his deep-baked integrity refuses to crumble. In other words, this is kind of funny. I mean, this is antiquity. David actually tries to use alcohol as a sex lubricant. Wow, I'm glad we've come so far from these ancient Bible days. No one does that. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. Uriah's devotion to God and his brothers trumps his buzz. And that's the sad, ironic truth that scripture invites us to actually marvel at. Uriah was a better man toasted than David was sober. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> And this episode would be funny if it ended there, but you know it doesn't. David was determined to cover his tracks, and if wine wouldn't compromise your eyes integrity, and perhaps a spear will. So in his desperation, verse 14 tells us, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And Joab, loyal general, obeyed the king's command. Verse 17 records the sad demise of one of the most noblest men in God's army with the simple words, moreover, Uriah the Hittite has died. And the point kind of sneaks up on you. If you don't catch it, you can miss it. Sexual sin, what started out as almost innocent, inevitably leads to greater and greater trespass as you attempt to keep it contained and, and secretized and covered up from others. No one can know. No one can find out. I don't care what it takes. This is my secret and I cannot be exposed. This is dark, folks. This is rock bottom. That's what David hits here. Sobering for us pastors, <laughs> ministry leaders, the Christian leader, God's anointed, the one so in tune with God's spirit that he wrote many of the most poignant psalms in scripture morphs into a cold and calculating murderer. <laughs> His heart had actually become so calloused, so desensitized to sin that he doesn't even feel a prick when news of Uriah's demise reaches him. That upset me, by the way, thinking about it and meditating on it this week. In verse 25, David tells a messenger to comfort Joab with these words. Don't let this upset you. 
the sword devours one as well as another. In other words, Joab feels like something is wrong here, David. I, 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 you're right. No, don't, don't let this upset you. Don't, don't let it really penetrate you. David's flippant. He's dismissive of the damage his actions are inflicting on others. A hardening of the heart has said, and just as Paul described in Ephesians 4 last week, right? Yeah, my, affections may have, my actions may affect others, but you know, who cares? That's life. Life is tough. <laughs> Folks, our flesh's capacity for deception, rationalization, and self-preservation is boundless. And those who are addicted to porn and private fantasy will tell you, eventually, you actually stop caring about what impact this may have on your, your, the people who you're in community with, your spouse, your family. At first you were worried about it, but now you're like, whatever. The only thing you eventually become consumed with is keeping your sin secret. And so you minimize the damage. Ah, you know, the sword devours one as well as another. You get used to walking around with a fatal flaw in your being, but you prefer treating it like a casual wound. Reminds me of a story, actually, that some of you may have read in the papers or seen in the news. Last year, this was last year, actually, the Sydney Morning Herald told the true story of a construction worker named Patrick Lawler, who came home from his job site one day complaining of a, of a pain in his mouth. He's like, honey, my mouth is kind of hurt, hurting me. And he figured it was actually a toothache. And he told his wife that the upper roof of his mouth, he's like, is it really bothering me? It's a little bit swollen. And so for almost a week, he tried aspirin, took like painkillers, and, and he actually put, sucked on ice like to help reduce the swelling. And when nothing brought relief, this is a true story, he finally went to the dental office where his wife worked. She was a dental hygienist. And it was only after the dentist took an x-ray did Patrick learn the true source of the toothache. As you can see on the screen, he had a four-inch roofing nail in his head. Apparently, Patrick had been working with a nail gun, you know, the kind that does roofing, and it kind of just kind of like backfired on him. He's like, whoa. <laughs> Although one of the nails was shot into his mouth and embedded itself, unbeknownst to Patrick, six days he walked around like this. And in the days following, he complained of a toothache, blurry vision, and he actually even tried ice cream. To soothe the pain. Then I just get some ice cream. <laughs> when the dentist reported their discovery to his wife, she thought they were actually joking, but the x-ray revealed the truth. The nail had entered the roof of his mouth. As you can see, it just missed Patrick's right eye and lodged only inches, actually, from his brain. Ah, it's, it's nothing. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> right? Famous line from Monty Python goes. Folks, too often... When it comes to an issue like porn and private lust, we walk around acting as if it's only like a toothache, minor ailment. Yeah, my head hurts a little bit. It's no big deal. It's a little toothache. When the reality is you've got a nail in your head. <laughs> Much like the one you were given when you walked into a service. Say, take a look, by the way. That's, that's a four-inch roofing nail, the kind that lodged in Patrick Lawler's. Feel its tip. And the difference is... <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, oh, I'm not touching it. <laughs> it's lodged inches away from her vital organs, eye and brain for Patrick Lawler, but in the case of porn, your heart and your soul. And so I ask you a question at this moment. What sexual compromises or private lusts are you tempted to minimize or dismiss? Maybe it's no secret to you what your struggle or issue is. The only surprise is actually that it would come out here in a service, at a conference, or a retreat. And you're like, whoa. Or perhaps you've actually been sitting here in private judgment the entire afternoon thinking, what a good message for some of these people. <laughs> I mean, it's called a confession. It's not me. I'm God's man. <laughs> I'm a pastor. <laughs> My heart isn't sullied. I'm disciplined. I'm impenetrable. You know the expression, pride goeth before a fall. David is living testimony embodiment of that. What areas of temptation or sexual compromise exist in your life where you're tolerating impurity or just indulging a little pleasure, the area that you're most tempted to give casual treatment to what may very well be, from God's perspective, a mortal wound. Think hard. Be honest for just a minute. David, celebrated leader, fearsome warrior for the kingdom, sensitive poet, hungered after the heart of God, sinks to the depths of darkness by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's sobering to see, folks. It really is. And it's a cautionary tale for all Christian leaders among us, starting with me. 
channel surfing tips, small pinhole compromises in private eventually and inevitably lead to public devastation on a grand scale you can't imagine now. This, this text actually has read me. <laughs> Late night channel surfing, that's my nail. <laughs> that's the wound I'm accommodating in my flesh and have often dismissed as negligible. It doesn't affect anyone, doesn't affect my ministry, who cares? That's the same attitude that David ended with. Who cares? And with that hardness, he goes about making provisions to enjoy the wife of the man he destroyed further. Verse 27 says, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. End of chapter. And you know David must have been thinking, see, all things work together for good to those who love that. Just like my magnet on my refrigerator says. All things work out in the end. So right, there were some casualties along the way. It's life. Who cares? Answer, David. Someone very, very important was forgotten about. Even though no other human knew what was happening behind the scenes with God's anointed, his actions had actually drawn the attention of a much greater authority with David than David. And chapter 11 closes with these haunting words. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. When you're at rock bottom, uh, it, it's like a sub that goes down. Uh, the USS Scorpion went down in 13,000 feet of water. That's rock bottom. When you're at that kind of depth, there are two things that are true. There's unbelievable pressure in your life. And secondly, there's unbelievable darkness. And you don't have a clue how you're going to get out. Standing in front of the sink in the bathroom, too ashamed to talk to God. I've been on the computer all night. And the thing is, I can't look myself in the eyes and honestly say I won't do it again tomorrow. It's a hopeless, dark place. You've resigned yourself to living this dual life. For me, it kept me from really living and from fully being alive. When a guy hits rock bottom and when he's in the depths, the only thing on his mind is, how quickly can I get out of this? The good news is, God will bring you out. But he'll bring you out a better man, a better husband, and a better father. David had hit rock bottom. When we talk about unbelievable darkness, it surrounded him. And maybe today your darkness is not as deep as an addiction, but your conscience has been pricked. And there's hundreds of compromises we make on a daily basis, from, from lingering in a place of temptation, drinking in the image of a co-worker or a ministry partner, to perhaps inciting the lust of another with our, our own immodest dress or behavior. Hey, look at him looking at me. We're all trying to fill the same hole, assuage the same loneliness. It's a, it's a dead end. It's not just a flesh wound. Your flesh will kill you if you give it free reign. And this is an invitation to take your first step out of the darkness into the light. Because what's incredible to me about the story of David's fall is that at that moment of spectacular failure, the Lord actually doesn't rain down punishment or send judgment as we expect. Rather, he sends David, of all things, a friend. <laughs> a friend named Nathan. A brother, a prophet. Someone actually called by the Lord to pour out grace and truth to, into David's life so that he wouldn't continue in his dark journey to complete and utter destruction, but instead open up a path of repentance, cleansing, and restoration. But that's next week. That's the final installment of our series, Restoration and Renewal. And, and you dare not stop here in our contemplation of pornography and sexual sin. To stop here actually risks despair, <laughs> Or to walk away being burdened by the feelings of guilt and shame and hopelessness that actually the Lord longs to deliver each of us from. But we have to stop here today because we're out of time. But next week, when we look at the second half of David's story, 2 Samuel chapter 12, you might want to read it this week, tells of this remarkable U-turn that occurs in David's life. It's messy. It's not clean. Brought about by a brother who truly cares enough to confront him with truth in grace and lead him humbly back to God. But right now, how about you? What is this stirred up in you today? I want you to do something funny. Close your Bibles. You can turn the lights down. I want you to, to feel the roof of your mouth with your tongue like this. Feel it? That soft upper palate. 
Now, at the same time, while you're doing that with your tongue, I want you to feel that four-inch roofing nail in your hand and touch that tip of it with your finger. What is the private eye for? The subtle compromise that you've been making and are tempted to minimize or dismiss. Is it online sites? I don't know. Chat rooms? Just dabbling in it, sniffing around, never really engaging. I know, let me guess, you're, you're just inquiring. Is it, is it raunchy radio that you indulge in on the way to work? Howard Stern, you know, you know, what? Verbal porn that's mainstream and joked about. Remember last week how Paul exhorted the believers at Ephesus to a zero tolerance policy when it came to such things? He said, but among you, there must not be even a hint of impurity because these are improper for God's holy people. Can we at least admit today that each of us has at least a few hints. <laughs> it doesn't have to be spectacular. It could be more innocuous forms of sensuality that compromise our integrity. Maybe it's flirting with a coworker or exchanging intimacies with someone who's not our spouse, just enjoying them in a way that we'd be embarrassed for others to discover. Or joking. <laughs> I do it. Paul talks about coarse joking that's all about filled with innuendo and double entendres. Boy, I was sensitized to that this week. I was like, oh my gosh, I do that all the time. God's word reading me again. We discover it's simply evidence of a heart that's more governed by our flesh than by God's spirit. What's it for you? Maybe it is something spectacular on a Davidian scale. Doesn't matter. It makes no difference. God knows, and although he may be displeased with your sin, he is not hostile or disgusted with you. Even if you're disgusted at this very moment with yourself. God is just glad you are here today at this moment in this time holding that nail in your hand and you have no reason to fear him he longs for you to admit the true nature of your wound that's actually how healing begins with proper diagnosis in the spiritual realm unless we recognize the deadly reality of sin we never turn to the only solution which is found only in the forgiveness and grace and restoration that Jesus Christ offers us so as we now prepare to come to the communion table to partake in the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to meditate on this nail in your hand and talk to God. He's longing to hear from you, although you may feel far from him, he is close to you. And let's use this time to inspect our hearts. Scriptures tell us to prepare our hearts, inspect our hearts, and come clean before the Lord. To give Words to our sin where it needs confession. Maybe confession is what you need to spend this time doing. To ask forgiveness where we need pardon. Or just admit the myriad of ways we've fallen short of God's design for purity and holy living. We're going to do that now and then come together to share communion in just a few moments. Let's pray together, okay? Lord, we now make space for private confession. This is a chance, Lord, to talk to you directly. Although we forget you, you have not forgotten us. Although we may be disgusted with ourselves, you are not disgusted with us. You love us. We are your imperfect children. And you desire to forgive, to heal, and restore us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that is the elixir, that heals the wound of indwelling sin. Speak now to each of your children, to the men here, to the women here, our brothers and sisters, we are in this together. We are your children.